New Zealand, known to most of you as the very gorgeous set of Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings trilogy. But what transfer pricing risk does this APAC player pose to multinationals? Well, it might look like the Shire on the surface lacks requirements and the ball's in your court to provide self-assessment, but man, fail to give them what they want and the hammer comes down faster than you can say, thou shalt not Pass. Don't worry, the Fiona Show is here to make sense of it all, and we welcome back Jeff Morris to the show to help out. Now remember, Jeff may be an ATO veteran, but he's not just any veteran of the ATO. He led the economist practice at the agency for 10 years between 2010 and 2020, and he joins us today to share the wealth of that knowledge. In speaking of knowledge, you can earn CPE credits for listening to this podcast. Here's how it works. We're planting three CPE code words through the course of this episode. Send all three to The Fiona Show at xbs.ai. Again, that's The Fiona Show, all one word, at xbs.ai. Now let's take a look at transfer pricing in the news. We know you've been waiting for it, and it's finally here. The Tax Foundation's International Tax Competitive Index 2020. The index measures how countries stack up in terms of tax competitiveness and tax neutrality. By the way, is there such a thing? Here's the deal. Tax competitive countries keep marginal tax rates low, so companies won't take their businesses elsewhere. Tax neutral countries try to raise revenue without making economic waves. As tax laws become more complex, they become less neutral, and in transfer pricing terms, they raise the risk of audits. And while we can't guarantee an audit-free jurisdiction, pretty sure that's a myth, we can tell you that audit risk looks the lowest in Latvia, Estonia, and Lithuania, all of which top the list in terms of corporate tax competitiveness. Now, where is transfer pricing audit risk the highest? Based on the index, preparing for inquiries in Korea, France, and Portugal is probably not a bad idea, as those countries are the Rubik's Cubes of tax complexity. But there's always hope for doing better. In the last year, Belgium's ranking jumped from 23 to 19. Israel rose from 31 to 25. And even Norway nudged up a point from 14 to 13. Good news for them, and in terms of transfer pricing audit risk, for us too. What? A tax authority that's lowering penalties? That really is news. The Thai Revenue Department is reducing penalties for submitting late transfer pricing disclosure forms. The catch? You must prove your disclosure is late because your business has been affected by COVID-19. Probably not hard to do. I mean, who hasn't been affected? The form was due on August 31st, 2020, and to reap the reproduced penalty benefit must be submitted electronically by December 30th, 2020. If those stars align, the penalty will be reduced from 200,000 Thai bots, or roughly 6,000 U.S. dollars, to 5,000 Thai bot, or 160 U.S. dollars. Pretty sweet, right? And submitting should be painless. The Thai Revenue Department set up an online portal, and taxpayers can upload the disclosure form in Excel. So no excuses. Happy birthday, Country by Country reports. Five years ago this month, the OECD released BEPS Action 13, which included the recommendation of master and local files, and perhaps the most tax-transparent documentation of all, the mighty Country by Country report. With detailed info about the company's business and taxes paid, the CBCR's mission was, and still is, to help global tax authorities hone in on multinationals' transfer pricing practices 
and to change any <laughs> questionable corporate tax behavior. Is the CBCR working its intended magic? Looks like it. Research shows that since the reporting standard was initiated, tax rates for M&Es have increased, but profit shifting has decreased. Impressive, but can country-by-country country reports take all the credit? Probably not. So far, what's driving good behavior isn't totally clear. Sure, some data shows that EU countries have made efforts to button up organizational structures, back up transactions that can be misconstrued as tax avoidance, and rely on tax havens less and preferential tax regimes more. But other data isn't so optimistic. It shows that profit shifting to tax havens is on the rise. In other words, what's working and what isn't remains a mystery. Does that mean we push the envelope and make country-by-country country reports even more transparent by going gulp public? Some experts think so. But if the CBCR is already changing behavior, we can't help but wonder, what's the point? Hi, I'm Matthew DeMello, and you may know me as the host of the Fiona Show Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. And while I love to discuss transfer pricing, this podcast isn't the only place you can hear me doing it. Cross-Border Solutions recently relaunched Transfer Pricing University, a live webinar series where you can learn about modern-day transfer pricing, everything from methodologies to comparables to preparing documentation to meet country-specific regulations. Good stuff, I know. Chief Economist Mimi Song leads the sessions. I just ask the occasional obvious question. Since our program is NASBA certified, you can earn one CPE credit for joining each session. Pretty sweet. So what are you waiting for? Join us for Transfer Pricing University Weekly. Classes are free, so now you really have no reason to miss it. Sign up at xbs.ai slash tpu. We're very, very happy to welcome back Jeff Morris to the program to talk about New Zealand today. Now, Jeff, just to get things started, New Zealand is a member of the OECD, as probably a number of our audience is aware of. Has it adopted BEPS Action 13 into law? Yeah, New Zealand has been active in the OECD and it actually sends uh, representatives to the transfer pricing working parties there, so they're very connected. New Zealand introduced the BEPS action item 13 into law back in 2018. Now it signed up to the country by country reporting and the exchange of rulings and the multilateral instrument and focused on improving its dispute resolution um, as well. And at the moment, um, through BEPS um, 13, uh, New Zealand receives around 1,400 country by country reports, at least they did in 2019 covering um, significant enterprises in New Zealand from the small and medium-sized businesses to the very micro-businesses in New Zealand. Plus, they have some headquartered companies of their own, about 20 in New Zealand, and so they're um, outbound country-by-country country reports. Right, right. That is not nothing. Now, is there an obligation to prepare documentation? Well, there's no statutory obligation to maintain documentation, but of course, like Australia, New Zealand's tax system operates on a self-assessment basis, so the taxpayer is expected to keep sufficient rec records to support its transfer pricing position. And, you know, as always, there's no obligation to um, maintain documentation, but there are penalties if there's a transfer pricing adjustment and there's no documentation because as in New Zealand's eyes, that might be that no documentation means that there was some level of carelessness around the transfer pricing uh, position. 
which could uh, result in some shortfall penalties. So it's important to make a judgment on when documentation for New Zealand is prepared. Right. And if an ME has more than one entity in a jurisdiction, does each one have to prepare transfer pricing documentation? Well, in in New Zealand, there's a consolidation regime. So the group has to uh, lodge uh, tax returns. So entities in, in the group um, you know, are covered because the transfer pricing disclosures are from the from the group's perspective, but often in the in the in the disclosures, there's a request to identify the name of the entity. So whilst um, the documentation has to be, uh, you know, prepared, it's probably better to start from the group, and then as you work through the transfer pricing transactions, uh, then focus on the entity and what the entity does. Um, as the starting point for the transfer pricing position. And one thing that's interesting is that there is no materiality for TP documentation. A cost risk assessment when producing transfer pricing documentation is endorsed by the IRD. So what does the IRD want you to do in that situation? Yeah, as usual, as always, you know, it's a bit of a tough one, isn't it? Because, um, you know, there's no suggestion that the same level of detail you know, for very large transactions should be provided for the for the very small ones. And even IRD themselves talk about, you know, compliance costs being, you know, something that they bear in mind, that is the taxpayers' costs as well as their own. And they suggest that it's, you know, quite reasonable to prepare some pretty high-level transfer pricing documentation for um, the smaller uh, transactions. And even just evaluating the results and makes it make notes about why the pricing is considered appropriate. But again, it's a it's a real balancing act, and just how much uh, effort needs to go into you know deciding what the documentation should be like. But I would say that IRD does provide some guidance on what good documentation includes, and they talk about you know analysis of the functions, assets, and risks, especially intangibles. Industry analysis, you know, identifying the transactions, make some effort to find internal comparables. Why is the method the best method? Why are the comparables comparable? Analyze the income statement of the entity or the or the transaction. And they also go on to say, you know, look for second profit level indicators like as a sanity check. And they also obviously include requested intercompany agreements also be part of the um, documentation as well. And the IRD is fairly rigid about that documentation being in English, correct? Well, English is the language of business in New Zealand. The only other option you might have is if you, if one wanted to produce it in, in Maori, but that would be extremely difficult for everyone, I would, I would think. <laughs> but um, and that will, any documentation will be, you know, will be a request from our IRD for that. And most of the time, companies will have um, around two months, uh, more or less, to respond to those requests. Of course. And I know they say that transfer pricing is an art, not a science, but I think it's quite departed from the linguistic arts in, the, in that respect. Are there any disclosures required by the IRD? When IRD engages with taxpayers, obviously their expectation is for the tax return to be lodged. That goes without saying, of course, but they also have a form which they call the BEPS disclosure, the base erosion profit shifting disclosure, which covers some, it's only a short two-page form, but it covers request data on hybrid arrangements, something called the restricted transfer pricing approach for related party borrowings. Now, we'll get 
back to that in a minute. But the other disclosure which they often request, and it will go out to about the top 650 companies in New Zealand with related party dealings, and that is the International Transfer Pricing Questionnaire. And again, this is a two-page document, and it parallels in a lot of ways the Australian International Dealing Schedule. It covers you know, data on what the level of the transactions from between related parties, what's the nature of the transactions, where are the counterparties located, and so on. And also asks some questions about guarantee fees, interest rates on loans, whether the taxpayer has updated transfer pricing documentation, where sales are booked, uh, which comes back to some of the court cases New Zealand has had, whether there's been a restructure or a recapitalization of some of the debt issues. But the international questionnaire is one that the IRD requests rather than demands to be lodged. Um, and the BEPS disclosure is the lodgement, the one that accompanies the tax return on the lodgement. And just interrupting very quickly for our first CPE code word, and that code word is Patsy, as in Dame Patsy Reddy, Governor General of New Zealand and the official representative of Queen Elizabeth II. Back to our conversation. Now, there are some related party disclosures that are supposed to be filled with corporate income tax. Is that right? Yeah, that's the BEPS disclosure document. As I was mentioning, you know, that was part of the IRD's response to to BEPS. They've got some questions there about hybrid arrangements, which is not strictly a TP issue. But on the TP front, there's an approach called restricted transfer pricing rules, which is a bit of a mouthful. But what they're trying to do is for businesses, you know, with high levels of um, related party debt, they actually, New Zealand approach is actually to restrict how the arms length rules work on pricing that debt. So specifically, if the um, New Zealand uh, borrower has high levels of gearing, that is they're above 40% debt debt to assets, or the borrowing is from a a low tax um, jurisdiction, then the IRD rules actually restrict what interest rate is allowed to be charged on that um, on that debt. And what that means then is uh, for New Zealand borrowers, actually set the credit quality of the borrower at one or two notches below the parent. And as well, they'll remove any um, exotic, what they call exotic features on, on the latter part of your borrowing. So that'll mean no subordination, no term, for the loan greater than five years, no interest um, deferral, um, no contingencies on repayments. So in a a sense, you know, what they're doing is making the loans, the party loans are very vanilla, vanilla type of approach. Sorry, they're making sure that they're vanilla or that in essence, they're putting the target sign on anything that, that looks extreme. Yeah, these are rules. So it's more than just a risk assessment. They're actually replacing whatever the taxpayer has done with by removing these so-called exotic features and setting the credit quality at a, at a certain at a certain level. And it comes with, you know, and the IRD know that a lot of taxpayers don't like this kind of approach. And some taxpayers have actually decided because they think it's not in taxation in accordance with the treaty the double tax treaty that New Zealand has with many places. So some taxpayers have gone off and done their own thing and ignored these rules. OIRD warns taxpayers not to do that. 
they want and New Zealand suggests that you know, if taxpayers have a dispute over the rules, they will engage with the counterparty's jurisdiction through the treaty process to allow the taxpayer to get some relief that way from double tax. Right. Now, are financial arrangements a focus of the IRD when it comes to transfer pricing? Very definitely. All of that um, restricted transfer pricing approach is very much in the, in the finance wheelhouse. You know, they talk about um, rewriting... Um, those related party loans. They also point to guarantee fees and the like as being an indicator of risk from the from the IRD's perspective. Indeed, it, which actually brings me back to a question I was going to ask: uh, redocumentation. But to the extent that uh, you know, just looking at the self-assessment function, does that reflect the amount of resources or perhaps lack thereof that New Zealand is? Putting behind transfer pricing at the moment, or let's let's talk about that. What kind of resources are they putting behind the IRD at the moment? Yeah, the team over there is dedicated to transfer pricing. They've got people with you know twenty years of experience in transfer pricing. They've been doing it as long as I have, and they bring in advice from US transfer pricing experts when they need to. And because they're you know connected to the OECD and they engage, you know, for instance, with the ATO over in Australia quite often and they kind of see the results of other countries' approaches there often and don't show an unwillingness to uh, get stuck in if, if, they, if they see it's important from their perspective. You know, and in a way, New Zealand knows that the companies that operate there are small on the world stage and in a way can uh, manage, directly manage those taxpayers by engaging with them in a way, you know, that a tax authority of a much larger market would not be able to because no one may not care really about what happens in New Zealand other than at a kind of marginal sense, you know, so that New Zealand can just be this, this small country doing its own thing and um, uh, people, you know, choosing to spend their time elsewhere, finding bigger fights um, elsewhere. Right. Another way of saying that might be it's a major player in APAC, but not necessarily this major player in global economics, so to speak. Of course, APAC has a very storied history in transfer pricing. And interrupting once again for our second CPE code word, and that code word is Cook, as in James Cook, namesake of the Cook Islands and European explorer who came to New Zealand in 1769. Back to our conversation. But when transfer pricing documentation is requested for an audit in New Zealand, how long does the taxpayer have to produce the information? Usually two months from the receipt of the request that they will often often be in writing. And taxpayers will, will you know, have already gone through a process. Normally, you've been directly engaged from a risk, uh, risk assessment perspective because there's only so many groups you know, in New Zealand, the New Zealand um, authorities often has a direct relationship with most of those. And so they'll know before an audit even starts, you know, what the risk issue, what the risk issues might be and what, whether the IRD is looking, looking for, is, is, has any concerns around what the taxpayer has done for two months. And that's, you know, something to be used wisely. You know, the, the taxpayer may not have, you know, they might have the documentation on hand, it might be in the drawer of the filing cabinet next to their desk, but sometimes it's held in the, for a country like, small country like New Zealand, it might be held in the parents uh, transfer pricing team. And my suggestion is to use that time wisely, you know, go through that, that 
that TP documentation, ask yourself what compliance risks might arise, you know, whether voluntary disclosure might be appropriate because there's um, might alleviate some penalties. And if there are penalties, what might one be looking at if the IRD took a dim view of the... Right, right. We see this sort of strategy from a lot of countries that typically don't put a lot of resources behind their their tax agencies, at least when it comes to transfer pricing. But I just want to note the number of working days you have here in in terms of the the documentation requirements and and how long you have to prepare for an audit. So reminder, this is a country that doesn't require documentation. 20 working days isn't a lot of time uh, to put together this documentation. So it seems like reading between the lines here, you definitely don't want to be in a position where you are starting from scratch. That that seems to be the setup. That's quite right. You know, the when the IRD re- requests documentation, that's it, requesting documentation that should have been prepared contemporaneous with the transactions. So if there is a disclosure on the TPP questionnaire that documentation has been prepared, then there should be as simple as digging through the filing cabinet and finding it. And the date on the front of the TP report will be a note when that was prepared. It's not a time to be used to prepare documentation <laughs> Because, you know, the IRD will see that anyway and they'll know it's not contemporaneous uh, and you'll have a larger set of questions on your hands about why wasn't documentation set up in the, in the first place. And that will again go to penalties if there is an adjustment. So it sounds like, just to summarize, that New Zealand is leveraging their place in APAC and the global economy by relying on multinationals to be self-sufficient in their compliance, to self-assess their transfer pricing position. So when the hammer does come down, those are the expectations. That's right. It's, it's pretty clear that you know the exp- expectations are, are, are set. Because New Zealand is a, is a small country and there's 650-odd taxpayers, in my experience is that our IRD will have something of a personal relationship or at least some kind of relationship with most of those taxpayers. You know, probably every few years I'll touch base, you know, to understand, you know, where that's at, even if it's a short conversation around, you know, hey, everything's business as usual. We're still the same old distributor that you asked us at us last time, and we're still earning, you know, um, profits within the metrics that IRD kind of expects. But you know, on the other hand, if these taxpayer starts to disclose restructures and so on, or they're a large, is a large taxpayer for New Zealand, you know, then they'll get more, you know, air quotes, personal um, attention. It doesn't sound so much like a, an old boys club so much as a lot of familiar faces in a, in a, in a particular corner of, of the global economy. Zooming in on comparables, does New Zealand prefer local comparables? Well, definitely preferred, but the challenge is to actually find them. You know, New Zealand is such a, like it's one quarter of the Australian economy in, in Australia. We find it very difficult to find, you know, good comparables uh, in many cases. So New Zealand does, you know, accept Australian comparables and do a combined Australia-New Zealand uh, search. And, you know, there's good reasons, you know, for that because Australia and New Zealand have got very uh, intertwined uh, economies and often seen as a single market. But IRD will also accept European and North American comparables and UK comparables. And the things that they often raise are, is the industry and the other functions um, similar? 
to the tested party in New Zealand. And how does the search for comparables take into account, you know, what New Zealand calls a, a higher cost of capital and higher distribution costs in New Zealand? So there's, and they're asking questions about it, is there adjustments or other things to point to that would make the comparables more relevant to New Zealand. Staying with preferences, is there any preference in terms of transfer pricing methodology? No preference for methodology. I think, you know, in my experience, they focus on, you know, what's reliable, you know, but the shortage of comparables in many cases will point, you know, many taxpayers to TNMM, you know, as, as the default for distributors, you know, cost plus for the, for the service companies, service arrangements, uh, you know, but IRD does ask questions about whether there's internal comparables, especially transfer pricing issues and is in audit or is somehow unique, or there's some disclosures in parents' financials that they engage with um, third parties. But it's not, you know, something to be taken for granted. Just because, you know, there's a service arrangement doesn't mean the IRD will refrain from using a sales-based commission. Or a sales-based method to generate a compensation for New Zealand. Yes, and despite what we've said about the resources that New Zealand puts behind the IRD, the country's transfer pricing regulations do seem sort of relaxed. They have ideas in mind, but not all have made it into formal regulations. Yet while the IRD imposes various transfer pricing penalties for various forms of incompliance, the penalty for tax evasion is 150%. So, Jeff, what does that tell us about the IRD's position on BEPS. Mm. And yeah, the 150% is for a tax evasion. I would make the observation though that normally, you know, a transfer pricing, you know, adjustment wouldn't not wouldn't be considered evasion per se. Um, and I think, you know, it does it does point to IRD has got a, you know, obviously a regime that has some teeth to it if they can demonstrate a case. But from a transfer pricing perspective, the most kind of common, you know, penalties that taxpayers might see, you know, ones around not taking reasonable care. You know, that's a that's a 20% penalty. Still significant, you know, but that's where there's accidental errors or professional advice was received. You know, wasn't it wasn't appropriate. But when it gets, you know, more serious, the penalties become Come added so unacceptable tax positions. It's a twenty percent penalty on top of not taking reasonable care, and an unacceptable tax position is one that's more likely to be wrong than right. And then the IRD scales it up again, and if if it makes can make a case for gross carelessness, then that's an additional forty percent. That means you know the taxpayer's taken no care and. And then again, it's step up if, if the ID thinks there's an abusive tax position, that's 100%, 100% penalty. And after that, you get the tax evasion 150% rate, which is quite significant. We can often talk a lot about penalties, but things that the ID, ID doesn't like, obviously obstruction, you know, not taking reasonable care, uh, preserving records. So if you're destroying them, for example, that's um, problematic. But the IRD, you know, also points to, you know, ways to lower those penalties and they can give emissions of between 40 and 100% if, for example, there's a full voluntary disclosure before an audit starts or even during the course of the audit, find a way to give some remission of some of those penalties, which is my point around, you know, if there's two months to provide the TP documentation, then it is a bit of a window there to understand what the IRD is looking for. 
and make a decision on, you know, whether whether it is appropriate to do a some kind of disclosure and get a reduction in penalties, for instance. Indeed, it, it sounds more or less like they they take a clear position on BEPS and it, and it gives kind of a clear direction of where things going, even if at the moment it's not the most intense jurisdiction, even necessarily in the region. Mm, yeah, exactly. Yeah. They want to lower their everyone's compliance costs and now they're pretty keen on encouraging taxpayers to do the right thing from the what they see is the right thing from the outset. Very, very interesting. Now, just going back for a moment to what you were saying or what we were discussing about comparables in, in terms of the focus on industry rather than function, is that unusual? Doesn't transfer pricing usually want similar functions with the industry not mattering so much? Well, I hope I didn't misspeak around this point because IOD you know, reiterates that the, they look at both industry and function. So, you know, a distributor in the in the same industry as the New Zealand distributor would be, you know, a, something of a sweet spot for the for the IRD. And, you know, going outside, you know, having the same function being a distributor, but in a kind of somewhat different or a very different industry, the IRD would look at those comparables as probably less reliable than the ones that were a better match for the for the New Zealand instance. A global pandemic, a grim economic forecast, feeling the squeeze, an R&D tax credit can help lower your burn. If you qualify, the IRS and some state governments will give you a tax credit equal to 10% of your company's spend on development activities. You can even take the credit against payroll taxes if you're in the red. All you have to do is claim it. So what's stopping you? If an expensive application process is turning you off, sorry, now you really have no excuse. Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven R&D tax credit software eliminates the need for pricey consultants and allows you to apply for R&D credits all over the world for one low fee. After all, why should you have to spend your whole R&D tax credit on getting your R&D tax credit? It's your money. Keep more of it with Cross Border Solutions, the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. Request a demo today. Visit xbs.ai/rd. That's xbs.ai/rd. So just to bring this back to a global context, is that typical for other tax authorities that they want the industry as well as the function? A, a question we get asked all the time at Cross Border is, why aren't my competitive competitors in my comparable set? And the answer boils down to the fact that you're looking at the function of the comparable, not necessarily the industry. That doesn't quite sound like the case for New Zealand. Yeah, that's a good question, actually. You know, why does IRD, you know, think about um, the function of the of the tested party as well as the industry? In my mind, it kind of parallels what the ATO does. And, you know, as a transfer pricing kind of person, it also means that if I can get a, a comparable that has the same functions, assets, risks, and operates in the same industry and is actually transactionally similar. It actually tries to undertake transactions in a similar way, you know, to the tested party. And that would improve my, the level of reliability of that as a comparable. So if I'm looking at a set of 10, say in my experience, say 10 comparables, and some of them are outside the industry, I might make the decision, well, to test the reliability of this analysis, I'm going to 
exclude them or take out the ones that are very similar. So I've got five comparables and I look at those five comparables who are a similar transaction in a similar industry, even similar product, um, and then test whether the results of that set is, is in line with the tested party, so the, ta- so the taxpayer's outcomes. If, and the IRD does caution against doing what they call data dumps of comparables. So they do caution against, and I think the ATO would, and other jurisdictions would say the same thing, don't take an approach that emphasises quantity over quality, emphasise quality at first, and even if there's a smaller comparable set, and there's obviously, you know, possibilities of some strange things happening in, in, in that case. But even if there's a smaller comparable set, the likelihood, if you've got the same function, same product, same industry, same transaction, you know, you'll have a more much more reliable TP study. And that seems like that becomes such a burden for multinationals because New Zealand itself just doesn't have this wealth of comparables by any means. And then not only are you looking at the function, but you're also looking at the industry, too. So to get a really secure set of comparables just seems like this uphill climb. It's relatively difficult, but the IRD, you know, the way they come at it is to say, well, you know, don't just, you know, you don't just have to look in within New Zealand for those comparables, look in Australia. And if that's not enough, look in Europe and North America and North America. And so they would say, you know, if you if you have a good standard, high standard on comparables by adding more countries, you'll actually eventually find, you know, a sufficient number. And, you know, in my experience, you know, having, you know, maybe five to ten comparables you know, which are kind of pretty, and I know there's extra work involved in this, but if one had to defend that order, then it might be worth it. If one had to do that extra work, yeah, you know, that would be preferable over a, you know, kind of just a, well, I'll get a distributor from New Zealand, Australia, Europe, and um, the North America and just have a set of 50 comparables and I'll construct a interquartile range and so on. Uh, you know, from those from those outcomes. So you know, and that's I guess in a way that's the message from New Zealand is, you know, emphasise uh, quality first over quantity. But I will say though, you know, New Zealand gives some pretty clear you know guidance on what their risk indicators are. And I think for so for distributors, the IRD you know mentions three percent as um, anything less than three percent as being um, risky. In the IRD's uh, view, three uh, percent margin, not pretty margin. That is, would have thought there's not many taxpayers, you know, who would. I mean, three percent would probably be somewhere in the you know middle of the range of comparables results, but it's probably something reasonably tolerable, you know, to get out of doing a big study, you know, that would meet the, you know, as you point out, um, the quality objectives of the of a, of a transfer pricing analysis. And there's other benchmarks that the IRD uses as well. That makes sense to me. Now, when you say the other benchmarks, are you referencing secret comparables that the IRD would use? So, you know, in talking about um, New Zealand's approach around managing risk, they've published uh, a set of risk indicators of when, and it can never be, you know, wholly um, perfect, but when the ID will um, sense the transfer pricing risk and initiate a conversation at least or some kind of review around transfer pricing. 
And, you know, they're risking it. There's lots of things that they don't like, but I'll point to some of them. The New Zealand gets concerned when there's two years of consecutive losses or significant tax losses, um, when there's a negative um, operating margin, when there's more than cost plus 5% on service charges imposed from overseas, when a distributor earns less than 3% earnings before interest and tax, when a retailer earns less than 5%, when a manufacturer, say contract manufacturer, earns less than 7% um, earnings before interest and tax, when royalties make up more than a third of EBIT, when more than 20% of the earnings before interest and tax depreciation and amortization is expensed as interest, when more than 40% of equity is debt, and this is a difficult one, when more than 20 million of um, purchases and expenses with uh, low or no tax jurisdictions. For example, when um, there's a marketing hub or a procurement hub involved. And there's other kind of indicators of risk as well. Cash pooling arrangements and interest rates on those are guarantees, cross guarantees, derivatives um, as part of the broader picture around finance risks. Are some of the things that attract um, IRD attention. That's right. And earlier this year, we know that the New Zealand arm of the U.S. technology company Cisco Systems paid $4.6 million in back taxes stemming from transfer pricing, quote, audit, settlement, compensating adjustment. That meant the company paid a total of $6 million in tax for the year ending in July which was more than its pre-tax profit of $4.9 million. Last December, Microsoft also paid roughly $25 million in back taxes to settle a transfer pricing dispute. How likely is a multinational to get audited in New Zealand? Mm. Yeah, those um, cases are interesting, aren't they? There's you know, been a, a history of you know, the RD challenging arrangements in those kind of e-commerce by Cisco Microsoft, of course, and um, there was another case of Oracle um, last year reporting it was in dispute with inland revenue over its uh, tax bills. And it's, it's hard to know exactly what those cases are related to, and, but I sus- suspect that they're about um, where sales are being booked, you know, whether it's Singapore or an Irish low or no tax jurisdiction, uh, or no or low tax entity is, is booking those uh, revenues. Which you know brings up brings to mind you know the idea is you know paying a lot of attention to um, you know whether the PE permanent establishment in New Zealand has been artificially avoided. At least that's what those cases you know call out to me as as some of the, some of the, some of the issues as well as you know they're all in the mm, digital enterprise um, space, e-commerce type space. So clearly that's a um, point of attention for um, inland revenue. But, you know, broad, more broadly, your question goes to, you know, how likely is it that a M&E will get, will get audited? And I think, you know, as we've been talking through the, you know, this evening, you know, New Zealand does take a kind of a more of a personal approach, you know, with companies in their population. They've got a, a program called the Significant Enterprise um, Program, you know, which monitors groups, you know, with $80 million plus, but multinationals with revenues of only $30 million or more get become part of that population of a thousand of a thousand groups. And the top 50 of those largest of the, in, that, in that group get one-on-one engagement. So, you know, through the, you know, the algorithms that the IRD applies, you know, applying those risk indicators that we spoke of before, 
know, three percent um, distributor margin, for example. You know, it can be pretty readily generated from the TP questionnaire, and because IRD knows in a broad sense the functions of the companies they're dealing with, you know, they'll be able to pretty easily check you know, whether any of those risk indicators are being breached. Returning to methodology for a moment, how often is methodology typically challenged? It's hard to know, isn't it? Because no one really talks about all the ugly side of uh, chains of pricing and, uh, you know, how controversy is, is resolved. But those cases, you know, that we mentioned before, Microsoft and Oracle and Cisco, you know, in my mind, they all speak to the possibility, the probability that they had a cost-plus approach, which the IRD did not like. So I think when they, when they uh, want to, they certainly can. In what industries or situations is the IRD targeting these days? Mm. And, you know, we, as we've talked about those risk indicators, are there some of the things that they can readily monitor? But they also, you know, talk about supply chain restructures, hybrid instruments and hybrid entities, um, income allocation by digital enterprises, you know, whether the income is being booked offshore when they buy the things that should be booked in New Zealand, royalty and licensing arrangements, uh, the use of um, low or no tax jurisdictions for some of the indicators. And they all of us, you know, have a wary eye on the, on the, uh, you know, financial arrangements as well, as we've mentioned before. New Zealand seems like an interesting jurisdiction when it comes to transfer pricing, because on the one hand, they seem very relaxed. Certain documentation isn't necessarily required. You can do your own self-assessment. But on the other hand, in specific areas, they're very strict. Certain situations are heavily monitored. They want their documentation fast. There are steep penalties if you don't comply. So, Jeff, how would you best categorize the risk to MEs? And what advice do you have for multinationals who have operations there? Yeah, that's a that's an interesting question because you know the country with you know four million people, you know it's you know much smaller than Australia, and Australia is you know a country of twenty million, and you know there's always challenges around you know getting documentation that focuses on sufficiently on you know the country and the circumstances of the entity operating there. And, you know, the message, I think, you know, the IRD becomes more satisfied in around a transfer pricing position is when that documentation or the thinking has taken into account New Zealand's, you know, special circumstances. And I think, you know, there's, when I talk to the, you know, New Zealand guys, they often say, you know, look, if only the local managers, the local directors of the New Zealand business had taken some time to think about the transfer pricing that they were implementing, as it were, you know, then they would see that um, in the New Zealand context, you know, there's some issues that, that cause some concern with, with, with IRD. And in a way, you know, the IRD is trying to enlist the help of, you know, the local managers and the local directors of the subsidiaries of the multinationals to try and be the you know almost the voice within the multinational to say hey you know don't just give us a generic study you know we've got some risk we're trying to manage here try to make sure that the uh, documentation does take into account some of those some of those things and you know by the way the IRD is almost encouraging the local directors to say to their parent company you know by the way if we had met these benchmarks that the ID has published, 
we might not have any transfer pricing issue at all. That might be a saving or trade-off between more documentation and a you know low risk of non-compliance from a local company perspective. So you know, create some real questions. You know, probably not different from you know some questions in other that the multinationals are trying to grapple with in TB and other countries as well. Note to multinational companies everywhere, if you think the coronavirus has affected your bottom line, take a look at how it's devastated the economies of governments around the world. And where do you think tax authorities will look to make up for all that lost revenue? That's right, your transfer pricing. You can't afford to be non-compliant, but then you probably can't afford to pay for an overpriced consultant who bills by the hour either. Oops, sorry, big four. We've got the answer. Cross-border solutions, AI-powered transfer pricing software keeps you in compliance by preparing accurate, hyper-localized reports that protect you from transfer pricing audits, penalties, and adjustments. And our technology is available for one flat fee, a fraction of what you'd pay a big-name consultant. Again, apologies, Big Four. Stay in compliance and on budget with Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven transfer pricing software. It's no wonder we're the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. There we go again. I'm so sorry, Big. You know what? Wait, who am I kidding? Sign up for a free demo of Cross-Border Solutions transfer pricing technology today at xbs.ai slash tp that's xbs.ai slash tp so that just about wraps up our episode on new zealand now comes the time for my favorite part of the show we have this rapid fire round of questions we call what we want to know and we have in our hot seat today for an expert in transfer pricing to get asked these questions we have you mr jeff but always the first question is are you ready yes i am far away (laughs) (laughs) what lesson what lesson has your career taught you the most Oh my gosh, you know, don't take um, anything for granted in transfer pricing. There's always an argument to be made about something. <laughs> like art. <laughs> that's that's the art part of of the transfer of transfer pricing. pricing. Is a dark art. <laughs> <laughs> Your words, sir. Uh, <laughs> what advice do you give to multinationals or you find yourself giving to multinationals over and over again? Um, you know, think about the local uh, jurisdiction in which the entity is operating and what, what the expectations are of the, of the local uh, jurisdiction. Often, and I say that because often it's the case that, you know, the kind of safe harbours or the risk indicators that the jurisdiction will publish are probably, you know, something, you know, tolerable or close to tolerable by, you know, many multinationals just trying to avoid, you know, much more significant compliance costs elsewhere. Do you have a mantra or any words that you live by? Well, I always say, you know, get stuff done. G S D, you know. That's a good that's a good little little uh, abbreviation too. You can put that somewhere and make it mysterious and have people <laughs> ask you and then you get to espouse those beliefs right. whenever anybody asks. If you were hiring a transfer pricing executive today, maybe you are, compared to 10 years ago, what skill set would you look for now that maybe that wouldn't have mattered then? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, 10, year, 10 years ago, we were hiring economists, you know, who didn't know much about transfer pricing. And, you know, as a regulator, well, I was, you know, selecting people who had the capacity, capacity to put a position 
you know, but also to develop, you know, very a technical, you know, analysis that could, you know, would be supported in um, audit as well as at, at MAP with other jurisdictions. But these days, you know, those things are still important. We want, you know, you'd want anyone, a transfer pricing person, to be able to put a position to a regulator, be able to back it up. But you also want to understand, you know, the, the kind of advisor to see the um, position from the regulator's perspective as well, in the sense that, you know, you're trying to find a way that will convince the regulator their positions forward for good reasons and, and looking not just at the technical analysis, but the commercial realism of the outcomes. So in a way, uh, you know, don't just rest on, I've chosen the right method, so therefore my transfer pricing is okay. You know, it's much more a story about these results are reasonable for what this company does. And I can demonstrate that with the evidence I have in, in, in front of me. And one last time, interrupting for our third and final CPE code word. That code word is Kappa spelled K-A-P-A, as in Kapahaka, the tradition-based art of song and dance among the indigenous Maori people of New Zealand. Back to our conversation. Now, uh, if you could help the rest of us out with this next question, assuming we ever get to travel again, what is a must-do in Australia? Well, must-do in Australia is, uh, as always, to see the wildlife. I love, my thing is hiking and camping outdoors. So um, seeing kangaroos at the sunset and watching uh, platypus swim in the, in the creeks and uh, wombats uh, waddle about the uh, hills is uh, something you can, cannot do anywhere else. Well, you've, you've piqued my imagination. So when this is all over, that might have to be a destination for me. Mr. Jeff, thank you so much for being with us uh, and speaking with us again about New Zealand. We want to thank everyone at home for tuning in as well. If you haven't yet, please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. While you're there, check out our Transfer Pricing in the News podcast. That's the Fiona Show hot off the press, bringing you all of the transfer pricing headlines from around the world in under 10 minutes every week. My name's Matthew DeMello, and they let me host, edit, and engineer this podcast. Christy Clements is our associate producer. Mary Lynn Mitchum-Strom is our executive producer. Until next week, everyone, stay safe. Wear a mask and we will catch you then. 